Bless America indeed, right? The greatest nation on earth, in my opinion, and one that I'm deep, deeply grateful to live in. In fact, um, I've probably heard all of the arguments um, for and against the, our founding fathers actually being Christians in 20-something years of ministry. I think I've heard them all multiple times, but it's pretty hard to argue with the fact that there are scriptures from the Christian Bible engraved in stone all over our nation's capital. I've often said that I have no intention of preaching politically motivated sermons or even patriotic sermons uh, that extol the virtues of this amazing place that we live in. And the truth is, I still feel that way uh, because the purpose of the church pulpit is not to advance a political cause or even instill patriotic feelings in the citizens of this great country. The purpose of the pulpit and my calling as a pastor and teacher is to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The Apostle Paul points this out to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where he refuses to engage in Greek rhetoric and cultural talk. Rather, he chooses to focus on the cross of Christ alone. And so that is why we have, of course, Independence Day parades and barbecues and festivals and celebrations and fireworks, which is the appropriate way, the appropriate place and time to celebrate the freedom and blessing that God has bestowed on America. And so... We then reserve these corporate times of worship as the church of Jesus Christ to focus on Jesus Christ. And I wanted to mention that this morning, but I also want to say please don't mistake the fact that I don't preach patriotic sermons for me being unpatriotic or not appreciating our country or our freedoms as Americans because I am in fact deeply patriotic and sincerely believe that we do live in the greatest country on earth and I love to celebrate that and I do celebrate that. I'm just not going to give up teaching opportunities to talk about anything other than Jesus Christ and what he's doing in and through the church because that is discipleship and that is precisely what we are all called to do to make disciples, right? We're not called to make Republicans or to make Democrats or to even patriots, right? We're called to make disciples of Jesus Christ. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German scholar and Christian martyr, once wrote. He said, the church has only one pulpit, and from that pulpit, faith in God will be preached and no other faith and no other will than the will of God, however well-intentioned. I agree with that statement. Okay, so please don't be offended with me as we move on ahead in the Word of God this morning and know that I pray for our nation continually. I do. I'm eagerly, in fact, awaiting our next cycle of political elections so that I can express in a tangible way my vision for the future of this country that I love so much through my vote and by many impassioned conversations on political and social topics that I'm sure I'll have with people uh, regularly, as I often do just not from behind this pulpit, all right? That is reserved again for the teaching and preaching of God's Word. So with that said, I've really been looking forward to starting this new sermon series today. And as we work our way through uh, the letter of James, and we'll be doing that in a sermon this morning entitled The James the Just through chapter 1. There are several biblical characters named James. But this letter of James was written by James, the brother of Jesus, who was commonly referred to as James the Just because of his virtue as a church leader. Arguably, he was the lead pastor or lead elder or head bishop in the Jerusalem church, which was the mother church, if you will, uh, in Jerusalem in the first century. And although... Some will probably always argue this. It is widely held by many scholars and teachers that James was the first among equals. 
in the church leadership structure. We see uh, an instance in Scripture where James makes a final ruling on doctrinal and procedural issues for the church, even among the other apostles, the heavy hitters like Peter and Paul and Barnabas, and then the Jerusalem Council, that's in Acts chapter 15, and then shortly after that, we see the entire church and the leadership agree to carry out James's ruling. Okay, at least in two other places, in Acts chapters 12 and 21, we see James being mentioned by name in the company of the other elders, even though those other elders are not being named, which suggests in that time period in writing that James probably held a very special position of honor and authority among the elders, the other pastors in the church. When I say elders, I'm referring to the pastors, okay? Uh, in writings from as early as the third century, James is referred to as the bishop of bishops who ruled Jerusalem. So we know that James was an elder or a pastor in the Jerusalem church, and arguably then he was the ruling elder, uh, the senior pastor, the lead pastor, the big cheese, whatever you want to call him. Uh, and although there may be some debate about that, what is without question uh, is, is his virtue, his character, his influence and authority uh, that he had within the first century church, in fact, well beyond just the church in Jerusalem. He was known as a man of prayer. In fact, he was often referred to in writings as the man with camel's knees because the calluses on his knees were so thick from the hours that he routinely spent kneeling in prayer for the church. He was without question a devout man of God, and he was executed for his faith. He was a martyr by the, the scribes and Pharisees. Church history records that he was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple, uh, but the fall didn't kill him, and that was a... a, a um, shadowing of Christ and his temptation in the desert. So they stoned him once he got to the ground, and that didn't kill him, so they beat him to death with a wooden club. And that was in A.D. 62, incidentally the same time that the Apostle Paul was in Rome in prison writing his letter to the Ephesians, which we just studied through a part of recently. So James's ministry was shorter than uh, in duration than uh, Paul's and some of the other apostles, and yet he still had a profound effect on the early church and, and beyond. On that this letter that we're looking at is most likely written to a group of Jewish Christians, uh, house churches that they were meeting in outside of Palestine in the early to mid uh, 40s AD. Uh, th these Christians were struggling with persecution and with poverty, and as a result of those struggles, uh, they were experiencing some conflict within their churches, which James addresses in several places in the letter. Uh, it's a very practical letter for the life and follower of Jesus Christ. It, it speaks directly to the trials and temptations that we often face as Christians even today. And so this morning, we're going to focus on chapter 1 in a sermon entitled, God is Calling. And I've named it that because uh, this chapter really lays out several aspects of God's calling for every follower of Christ. Okay, so let's turn there together. Uh, if you have your Bibles to James chapter 1. We'll have it up on the screen as well. And let's read the opening. Verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, at first glance, this seems like a fairly simple, uh, a fairly innocuous uh, greeting to the churches that James is writing to, but it actually carries some theological heft because of the reference he makes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. We know that Jesus chose 12 disciples that signified the 12 tribes of Israel, right? It also signified the church, the New Testament church of which we are a part, as the new Israel. We also know that the 12 tribes of Israel were persecuted and 
scattered throughout the world by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, which was commonly referred to by the Hebrew people as the dispersion. And so here in verse 1, James reinforces the idea that the New Testament church is the new Israel by referring to their persecution and dwelling outside of Jerusalem as the dispersion. And so I just point that out because I think it is almost incredible how these first century Christians would point to Jesus Christ in nearly every single thing that they did, in, in, in every action, in almost every word that they spoke or wrote, they reflected Christ so intentionally to the degree that, that even in what would otherwise be a simple greeting at the beginning of a letter, right? James in the greeting. This is the part where you say, hey, Bob, hey, Jim, hello. This is the, the opening to the letter. Even there, he carefully and, and intentionally chooses his words so as to point right back to the teachings of Jesus Christ. I think it's nothing short of brilliant and probably something that we should pay closer attention to than we most likely do in everything that we do and say, even in casual conversation and being careful in our speech, pointing back to Jesus Christ. So these first century followers of Christ were so intentional and careful to point others to Christ in everything that they said and did. And, and I, I love that. I love to point that out. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 2. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now just pause there a second. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's a really weird thing to say to someone. Think about that, especially to your friends, right? If I wrote you a letter and said, hey, my friend, I just want you to be overflowing with joy when your life turns upside down and you run into nothing but problems. I just want you to be crazy happy when it all goes wrong. That would be a really weird thing to say, wouldn't it? That's exactly how James starts out his letter. Now, he explains, he explains it a bit in the next two verses, but he doesn't let them off the hook at all. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So great. He explains that there's actually a benefit to going through struggles in life. And that sounds a bit better, but then verse 4 comes along. He says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Don't miss this here. What he just said. Verse 2, he says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And then in verse 3, he explains that those trials produce steadfastness. And then in verse 4, he says, Let steadfastness have its full effect. So if steadfastness comes from trials, and steadfastness is to have its full effect, then the trials must have their full effect in producing that steadfastness in our lives, right? In other words, don't run from your trials. Don't run from the problems, from the struggles, from the hard circumstances in life because it is through them that God is producing something good in you. That's what James is saying. So what is that something good? It's steadfastness. What exactly is that? Well, that word in the original Greek is the word hupomone. It means endurance even through the greatest trials and sufferings of life. Endurance through the greatest trials and sufferings of life. Honestly, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me. Not something I want to count it all joy about. Certainly not something I want to be happy about. And yet James, the great and virtuous leader of the Jerusalem church, says, Hey friends, be really joyful when life gets really hard. 
Because in those times, God will teach you to endure through the most difficult circumstances in life. And honestly, I think sometimes we just kind of read right over passages like this. Because we know that the first century church certainly went through some heavy persecution, but surely God doesn't expect us to be happy about life when it's really difficult, right? Well, look, we should pay really close attention here. Because although this probably flies directly in the face of much of what the church in America has been teaching over the past 30 plus years, it is as applicable to the church today as it was then. And with the winds of change toward the church that are accelerating in our culture today against true Christianity and the church itself, this teaching not only applies to our individual lives and individual struggles as Christians, but it may in the very near future apply to the church as a whole in this country. And I'm not uh, fear-mongering, by the way. I'm not. I'm simply teaching the church today what James taught the church then, which is to not run from our troubles, but to endure even through the hardest times because that steadfastness, that endurance that comes out of our trials and suffering helps us become one step closer to being perfect, Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 4. That means we're then stronger when the next trial comes along. You see, God never intended for us to be weak and afraid and frail and powerless and spiritually anemic. Of course not. He intends for us to be strong and confident and healthy and powerful and spiritually robust. But that doesn't happen randomly or accidentally, and it certainly doesn't happen without cost. On the contrary, it comes by way of testing, okay? Throughout our lives, God calls us to many things. Many things in order to refine us and strengthen us and grow us into maturity, into the likeness of Christ. And as much as the church may try to avoid talking about it, the fact is, as taught plainly in Scripture, sometimes God calls us into difficulty. Okay? Sometimes He calls us into difficulty. Our troubles aren't always because we're being attacked by the enemy. Sometimes they are, but sometimes our faith is simply being tested by God in order to make us stronger. And notice I said tested, not tempted. We'll cover that in a minute. But James is clear here in verse 2 that God allows our faith to be tested. And the result of that, based on our response, is something that we can rejoice in, knowing that we will be better and stronger and wiser after those trials than we were before. That's why they're called trials. Interestingly enough, the word trials in verse 2 is the Greek word parasmos, and it literally means proving. And then the word testing in verse 3 is the Greek word dokimion, which refers to a positive test that is intended to make one's faith genuine. So our trials, our hardships and struggles are proving grounds that test our mettle as followers of Christ and strengthen us where we lack so that we're better equipped for the road ahead of us. Okay, and it's, and it's not as if God throws some trouble our way and then he stands back to see how we react, hoping that maybe we're going to make it through. No, James teaches us in verse 13, which we'll read in a moment, that God never tempts us. Right? He, he's not far off from us, waiting to see how it all pans out. God is sovereign over all things, and he is with us in all things. In every single detail, Every single moment, every hair on your head, every circumstance that we face, He bestows in all of that good gifts upon us that we might not merely survive, 
through trials, but actually thrive and become stronger as we walk through those difficult times in life. He is always there. He is always there to provide everything that we need to endure, yes, but also to grow and to flourish. And yet, it isn't uncommon for folks at the first sign of trouble in their lives to either run from it or to go to a friend or their pastor or someone and say, man, tell me what to do. I'm, I'm going through this really difficult time in my life and I don't know what to do. And, and it's good, of course, to seek wise counsel. We're instructed to do that in Scripture. But my first question for folks is always, how much have you prayed about this before today? How much have you sought God about this before today? Because he's always there with us to provide what we need through trials of life. And he's generous in that provision. But we have to seek him for it. Let's read verse 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. God's always there. He never leaves us, even in hard times. And he's always ready to provide whatever we need in those times of trouble to endure and grow and thrive. Now, that doesn't mean it will be easy, right? It doesn't mean it'll be easy, but that's never been the point of living out the gospel anyway. Jesus assured his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. John 16, his good gifts to us in those times of trial are far greater than the trial itself. He said that just before he was arrested and put on trial. I think that's fascinating. Just before Jesus' greatest test, his greatest trial, he was tested and proven worthy to bear the weight of the sin of the world. And then after his resurrection, he met with his disciples again, just before ascending to heaven, and he gave them, and of course, consequently all of us, the great commission to make, his, to make disciples of all nations. And then he finishes that commission with, I'm with you always, to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. So, sometimes God calls us into difficulty, yes, and in fact... In fact, we can expect that in life at times, but we can also expect with every confidence that he will be with us every single step of the way, providing us with every good gift that we need to endure and grow and flourish and thrive even in our times of difficulty. In fact, there is no version of a life spent following Jesus Christ where he abandons us. How do I know that? Because he made us a promise. I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, let's keep reading. Verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, so sometimes God calls us into difficulty and in the midst of those trials, we're to ask for wisdom, for direction and understanding, for how we're to proceed and, and we're to do that in full faith that he's going to provide that wisdom that we need to navigate our way through that trial, okay? God calls us into faith. God calls us into faith and this is one of those passages of scripture, by the way, that has historically, at least in charismatic circles, been thrown around and applied in just about every context other than the one that it was actually written in. 
It's often coupled with verses like Matthew 18, 19, where Jesus said, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Uh, Mark 11, 22 through 24, where Jesus said, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. I can't tell you as a kid how many times I stood in front of mountains and tried to work that deal. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And many people, in fact, many pastors, have taught versions of these passages over the years that are gross misrepresentations of the true meaning and intent of what Jesus and James were actually trying to communicate in these verses. And those misrepresentations often then get misapplied in the lives of Christians who then eventually become disillusioned with the faith when their positive confession doesn't pan out like they were told it would. It is at best an ignorant, albeit innocent, distortion of the scriptures, and at worst, it's willful false teaching. And so we need to be really, really careful here because one of the few things that there seems to be very little grace for in the church, according to the Bible, is false teaching. In fact, in every instance where examples of false teaching are discussed in Scripture, we are told to be fairly ruthless in our response. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Matthew 7, 15. John said, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. 2 John 1, 9 and 10. We need to be very careful who we allow into our homes that claim to be of the Christian faith, teaching some other doctrine than what is in the Bible. Paul said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Acts 20, 29. He also said, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Romans 16, 17, and 18. And people ask me all the time about having friends in the world, and Jesus ate with prostitutes and sinners. That's right. You go out and make friends in the world, and you tell them about the love of Christ. You be the love of Christ. But when it comes to someone who claims that they're a Christian and they're teaching, any doctrine that is contrary to this word have nothing to do with them. Don't have a cup of coffee with them. The Bible says to be ruthless, okay? False teaching from within the church was a problem in the first century, and it's a problem today. As far as the doctrine of positive confession is concerned, it started, at least in modern church history, with the Word of Faith movement in the latter part of the 20th century, and it has been propagated ever since, unfortunately, predominantly in Pentecostal charismatic circles. In some cases, by well-meaning but deeply misinformed pastors, but certainly in many cases by con artists who are trying to ply their false teaching for dishonest gain at the expense of God's people. And they love to take these verses and others about faith and twist them for a purpose that they were never intended for. And so I'm saying all of this to say that it is really important 
that when we read scriptures, that we do so in the context of the bigger picture that they were written in, and also in the context of other scriptures that deal with the same subjects, okay? We should always weigh scripture against other scripture and always seek to understand any given verse that we're meditating on within the larger context surrounding it. So with that said, we'll take just a moment and do a little exercise, okay? And we're going to talk about the kind of faith that Jesus is referring to in these passages that I've just mentioned, and also the faith that James is talking about in our text this morning, and then we'll tie it all back in together, all right? Matthew 18, 19, Jesus says, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. If you back up and read the last 20 verses of that chapter, what you find is this entire discussion about experiencing trials within the church and how to navigate your way through those trials, those troubled times amongst the people within the church, where the believers involved, some of them are not cooperating. They're not doing what they should. And so right after Jesus explains how church discipline should be handled in these situations when trials arise among them, he says, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now again, he's saying this in the context of of a talk about church discipline. He's saying have faith that when you're going through these trials together within the church, that if you ask for my help in that situation in faith, it's going to be done for you. I'm going to help you. And then immediately following that statement, he, he gives this promise in verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. He's reiterating what he just said in verse 19. He's saying, I'm with you always. No matter how difficult the trial is that you're facing, I'm with you. And you need to believe that in faith that I will see you through these times of trial in your life. What it clearly does not mean is that we can randomly get together with other Christians and ask for anything good that we can think of, and then we're guaranteed somehow to have it. R.C. Sprawl once said, if that were the case, we could settle all wars, wipe out cancer, and end poverty in a heartbeat. It's true. We have to read these powerful verses, and they are powerful, by the way. We, We must read them in context. Okay? Jesus said to his disciples, have faith that when you go through hard times amongst yourselves, I'm with you and I will guide you. So look, there are scriptures that apply to divine healing. Yes, in fact, they're in this letter that we're going to be studying through. And so when we're asking for healing or we're meditating on that situation, we should apply the verses that actually talk about healing. And there are plenty of them. But we don't take verses that are not talking about healing and try to apply them to that situation. That's when we get into trouble. And that's, in fact, when we mislead other Christians. And that's a very dangerous place to be. So we need to look at the bigger context, what he's talking about. Let's continue. Um, he, he ends this entire teaching, Jesus does, this with a parable about forgiveness. So he goes through the whole thing about trials within the church. And then he tells a parable about forgiveness in verses 21 through 35. We don't have time to read it here. But he ends that parable with a statement about how God will only forgive us when in faith, enduring through our trials, we offer forgiveness to others. It goes hand in hand with the discussion about facing trials within the church amongst ourselves. He says you absolutely must forgive. And we talked about all of that last week, right? And then in Mark eleven twenty-two through 24, Jesus says, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. And whoever does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. 
Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. The reference uh, moving a mountain that Jesus uses here was a common metaphor in Jewish literature at the time. They used it all the time, frequently to express the idea among the Hebrew people that those who believe in God can have confidence that he will accomplish even the impossible according to his sovereign will. And so we then look at the context that Jesus made that statement in, where he used that metaphor. The day before, he passes judgment on Jerusalem figuratively by cursing a fig tree for not bearing fruit. Right after that, he goes in and cleanses the temple of the money changers. So what's he doing? He's dealing with disobedience within the house of God, amongst God's people. Sounds an awful lot like Matthew 18 that we just read. And then the following morning, as he and his disciples pass by the fig tree and they see it withered and they express their amazement, he makes this statement about receiving whatever you ask for in prayer. And then he follows that statement with verse 25. He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So Jesus is making these statements about faith in the context of trials amongst God's people within the church. It's about navigating their way through the sin and offense that God's people are living in amongst each other. And then he closes out his teaching here with an almost identical statement about forgiveness as he did in the passage in Matthew 18. He says, if you have faith in your trials for guidance and wisdom and forgiveness, all of which you're going to need to endure, then God will forgive you for the wrong that you've done. Can you see the correlation can you see how when we compare Scripture against Scripture on the same subject, the picture of what is actually being taught becomes very clear? And so now if we go back and look again at what James is teaching in our text to tie it in this morning, which has reflected the teachings of Christ, by the way, all the way through already, even in his greeting, right? He's, he's just reflecting the teachings of Christ. He says in verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting. He's talking about believing in faith for what? That God will grant us the wisdom that we ask for when going through trials in life. He said all that in the first five verses. And then he says, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Well, this sounds just like the money changers in the temple in Mark 11. The fig tree that was not bearing any fruit, also in Mark 11. The brother who brought offense in Matthew 18, but refused to repent. You see, James is describing the person in the church who has no real faith. And he says that person will not receive anything from the Lord because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This isn't original material. James is just taken from the teachings of Christ and putting them in his own words. And then he continues. Let's read verses 9 through 12. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exultation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. What's James talking about here? Right after his comments about having faith, without doubting, he's talking about forgiveness and reward. 
we will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is precisely in line with the teachings of Jesus himself. And James should know, right? He was the brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he's explaining here that God calls us to faith when times get tough. And so our job in the trials of life is not to handle everything in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own abilities. No, our job in those hard times is to ask God for wisdom and guidance in how to proceed and then to believe in all faith, knowing that God will provide everything that we need to endure with steadfastness through that trial. And when we come out on the other side of it, we receive an eternal reward. Okay? And then James takes it one step further. Let's keep reading verses 13 through 17. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So he makes it clear. That although we will be tested in this life, God never puts us in a position where he is luring us into sin. Never. God cannot be tempted and he himself tempts no one. That comes by way of our own desires. James says, look, the only things that you're going to get from God when you're experiencing trials in life are good things. Perfect things. Why? Because God never changes. He isn't rattled by our circumstances. There is no variation in him at all. He simply sends us good and perfect gifts when we ask in faith in every circumstance and difficulty in life so that we can endure through those and grow in him, okay? And then James makes one more very important statement about God's calling in our lives. Let's finish our text this morning with the rest of chapter 1, starting at verse 18. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Knowing this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And those were common Hebrew sayings at the time. Therefore, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with all meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James says, look guys, you're going to experience trials in this life. There will be times when God will call you into difficulty. And when that happens, he will call you into faith for guidance and direction and wisdom so that you will grow and be made more like Christ himself through that difficulty. But if all of that is going to actually work into anything good, you're going to have to act on that wisdom and guidance and direction that he gives you. You cannot simply wait around 
for something to happen. You have to act on what he tells you to do. So when trials come and we ask in faith and receive his word on that matter, he then expects us to act on that word. God calls us into action. Okay? He calls us into action. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. The word doers there, I think this is fascinating, is the Greek word poietes. It literally means poet. It's the same word that was used in ancient literature to describe a poet. So, for instance, in Acts 17, 28, as the Apostle Paul is addressing the Oropagus in Athens, he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And so, uh, also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. The word poets there is the word poetes, right? The literal translation being poet, but it also means a maker, a performer, a producer. So when James says, be doers of the word, be, be poetes, he's saying, just as the poet doesn't simply hear the poetry, he makes it, he produces it, he performs it, right? He carries it out, he does it, just as it is an appropriate response for the poet to perform the poetry, it is an appropriate response for Christians who hear God's word to then perform God's word, to do what it says. In fact, that is the only appropriate response to the word of God. Because being hearers of the word only is self-deceptive. It, it, it gives us a false sense of piety, of holiness, when we hear and understand his word without any resulting action. No response in our lives to that teaching and instruction and guidance and doctrine. All right, listen, it's not enough to be willing to do God's Word. It's not enough to be willing to do God's Word. We actually have to do it. We have to act on it because God calls us into action. I love how David Platt puts this. He says, if you're willing but you don't do anything, you're not really willing. Don't be willing to obey the Word. Obey the Word. Don't be willing to help the poor. Help the poor. Don't be willing to share the gospel. Share the gospel. Don't be willing to live in purity. Live in purity. We're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. I think that this is probably the part of God's calling that the majority of believers get hung up on. I really think that most of us understand that God tests us through difficulties in life. And I think we understand that we need to seek his word and his voice. We know how to meditate on the word and seek him in prayer. And we know that he's faithful to provide us with the guidance and wisdom and direction that we need. But I honestly believe that most Christians understand the path that God has laid out before them. I think it's the doing part that gets a little murky. Why? Because so often what he calls us to reside somewhere outside of what we're comfortable with. And so in order to fully answer that calling, we have to be willing often to let go of some of our comfort and security, and that is unsettling, to say the least. And I'm not telling you anything, by the way, that I haven't experienced firsthand in my own life. Understanding that there would be difficulty was not a problem for me. Seeking him for wisdom and getting the answers that I was asking for was not a problem for me. Where the difficulty came in where my progress with the Lord came to a screeching halt was when I realized that what he actually expected me to do is what he was telling me to do. Now, wait a minute. You, you want me to do that, right? He actually expected me to do what he'd been telling me to do. And 
I look at scripture, isn't that exactly what happened to the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19? He was a devout religious man. He came to Jesus in faith, believing that Jesus would give him wisdom and guidance. And that's exactly what happened. But as soon as Jesus explains to the man that he'd have to give up his comfort and security in order to follow Jesus, the man went away sad. In fact, interestingly enough, uh, James's instruction in verse 27 of our text this morning echoes Jesus's instruction to the rich young ruler in terms of the actions that Jesus wanted him to take. And you can read that on your own time. The point is, there was no lack of faith there for the rich young ruler. Just a lack of willingness to actually do what Jesus was calling him to do. And I'll tell you, I, I completely get this guy. I get him. I understand the rich young ruler because I walked away from the call in my life very sad and frustrated for many years until I finally submitted to it. And it hasn't always been easy. In fact, it has rarely been easy, but it has been the most fulfilling journey of my life. But it meant leaving the life that I had known behind and stepping into a whole new world of unknowns. And that can be very disconcerting. It can be downright frightening at times. And, and by the way, I'm not looking for a cookie here. Okay, I'm not looking for a trophy. Uh, this should be a matter of course for Christians. In fact, in every single case in Scripture, when you look at Jesus calling his disciples one by one, what did he say to them? Stop what you're doing and come follow me. Leave your job and come follow me. Leave your mother and father and the only life that you've ever known where all your roots are planted and come follow me. I'm not sure that the call of Christ is ever an easy one, to be honest. There will always be difficulty. But we can approach him with all confidence and all faith that when we ask for wisdom and direction and guidance that he'll give us just that. But then after that, we have to choose to respond. We have to choose to act, to be doers, to be poets. We have to perform his word. We can't just be hearers only because God is calling. He's calling you. He's calling me to a life that will sometimes be difficult. Sometimes it's going to be challenging. It will certainly be unpredictable from time to time. And yet it is the only life. Please hear me. It is the only life that you will ever live that will truly fulfill you. It is the only life that will truly fulfill you and realize all of the potential that you were created for. And you were created with a lot of potential. There is simply no other way. And so, if you're holding anything back from God, any part of your life, any part of your calling that has yet to be fulfilled in your life because of a fear of moving forward, the fear of what I might have to give up, a fear of the unknown, let me just encourage you this morning with the words of James from verse 25. He says, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer, the poet who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. God wants to bless you with good and perfect gifts. And we have to act on that calling. And listen, when you do, no matter how difficult it becomes, God will never leave you or forsake you. Never. 
He is with you always.